This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. One of the things that's on the plate for the federal government in Ottawa these days is gun control. Now, those two words actually cause uh, an immediate reaction from just about everybody. I mean, we've seen the stories that have happened in Las Vegas and in Parkland, Florida, and so many others uh, from the last couple of years with our neighbors to the south. And uh, I just, I guess the concern here is that we don't want to get smug on this side of the border and think, well, isn't that terrible what's going on down there? Thank heavens we don't have that sort of a problem. Uh, statistics indicate that, yeah, we do have a gun control problem here. Tim Harper, a national affairs columnist, uh, writes about this in the Toronto Star today, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. How are you doing today, Tim? I'm good, Bill. How are you? Good. I mean, as soon as you mention those two words, gun control, uh, all of a sudden the, come visions of the National Gun Registry that the Liberals tried to put through in the 1990s and the NRA and pushback. It's, it's a very contentious issue. And as you point out in the piece today, I guess the big question here is, how is this going to play out in Parliament this time? Well, you know, you more than anyone else will know how many times I've been wrong on things. <laughs> I, I, I've, I've got a sneaking suspicion that we're not going to see the um, the hysterical kind of shrill arguments, on, uh, frankly, on both sides of this uh, debate that we that you and I remember from the, uh, I guess, from the mid '90s onward. I, I was rather struck yesterday. You know, uh, opposition parties got to oppose, but I was struck at how. Um, I guess measured the reaction from the conservative side was, uh, you know, they had to try to find holes in this uh, legislation that was tabled yesterday. But there's nothing really radical about this legislation. It's, you, you could make the case that it's a, it's a rather uh, tepid or, or, or timid um, move on gun control. It does largely fulfilled the uh, 2015 uh, campaign promise on gun control from Justin Trudeau. But I, this is no, no kind of game changer. It, 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 it tightens a few things up. It makes a, a few changes. But I don't believe we're going to see um, that kind of debate that um, you know, we, we've seen in the past uh, for two reasons. I just don't think the legislation is that uh, radical and I'd like to think that maybe in 2018, given the gun debate that we're also seeing south of the border, uh, that maybe we can have a bit more of a mature uh, discussion on this legislation. Well, obviously, and you mentioned some of the incidents that occurred in the States in your piece uh, today, Tim, and, and yeah, that, those are germane to this discussion, and they need to be. But I, I keep going back to that knee-jerk reaction. Some of the most... Uh, polarizing shows I think we did back in the 1990s here on the radio station where it had to do with, you know, Alan Rock and his idea about the long gun registry and, the, the, you know, this is absolutely necessary. And, and and we didn't quite get Charlton Heston saying they can pry the gun out of my cold, dead hands, but there was a huge pushback, not just in urban centers, but in rural areas at the same time, saying you're penalizing people that are holding these things legally. What's your problem here? You're, you're not going after the bad guys, you're going after the good guys. Are we, are we going to hear something like that anyway? Well, you know, uh, inevitably we will, but uh, I'm I'm uh, kind of a veteran of these uh, debates as well as you, as as you are. I, I got you know email response to a, a column is often a, a good litmus test or a good gauge. I actually received emails this morning from readers who said they were gun owners who thought this was actually quite reasonable. Now there are others, uh, and this certainly came up in Ottawa yesterday. They are going to argue that uh, the, this. Uh, one facet of the legislation would compel um, uh, gun sellers, the vendors, uh, to keep records of uh, the sales and, and uh, keep them there for uh, 20 years. Now, the, the records are not uh, accessible by the government, but they would be from the uh, police if they had uh, due cause to seek the records and went through the, um, you know, the regular judicial uh, hoops to get get a warrant. Now you're going to hear, uh, as we already have, that this is a, a backdoor gun registry. It's just a, a gun registry by a different name. Uh, I don't buy it uh, personally, but you know I'm not a gun owner, and uh, you know we are going to hear. We will hear echoes of the old argument of the government's coming for our guns, uh, and that this is a, a registry by another name. I will tell you this: the liberals. Uh, I don't know how many times I heard Ralph Goodale say yesterday, "This is not." A gun registry. Uh, they made it very clear in the uh, their platform that the uh, the Glen gun registry, and we remember what a debacle that was. I think the, the, the bill went up to something like two billion dollars on uh, a good idea run amok. Um, that this is not a gun registry. So 
uh, whether um, the public safety minister, Goodale, as he said, has been able to find any kind of consensus. Uh, we'll have to wait and see. You know, the regulations are going to come out, and there will be a debate around this. But uh, it's probably a good sign for the government that the uh, those fighting for uh, gun rights say this goes too far, and, um, and, and those gun control advocates say it doesn't go far enough. So it's kind of that, you know, not too hot, not too cold uh you know, middle-of-the-road porridge kind of uh, legislation, I would think. But we'll see what happens when the regulations come out. And there's always going to be, and I'm glad you addressed this in the piece today, there's always going to be the inclusion of what about the illegal guns. I mean, the government's not doing anything about that. And and, and I I don't know anybody that's going to disagree that that's a major concern here. Uh, But aren't they two separate issues? Well, I would argue that one of the, the, perhaps the biggest problem, and it was not addressed specifically yesterday in Bill C-71, is gun smuggling. Uh, now, the government uh, did have a guns and gangs uh, summit recently. They have committed, I think, $327 million over five years and $100 million per year um, after that uh, to deal with um, uh, the gang problems in, in the large cities. Uh, and a lot of that money is earmarked for tighter um, security at the, at the borders uh, and, and better uh, surveillance. Now, um, I came across some statistics somewhere in the uh, in the column about the number of uh, illegal weapons and uh, firearms that were seized at, at the southern Ontario border crossings um, in 2017, and um, they've gone up uh, quite a bit compared to previous statistics. I don't know whether that indicates. Uh, I couldn't get anybody to analyze this for me. That it would indicate one of two things. They're getting better at seizing weapons, or there is just that that many more weapons coming across the border. But clearly, this is uh, the, the and this is, by the way, one of the conservative arguments that might hold weight. This legislation does not exactly target the problem of uh, illegally uh, smuggled guns into this uh, country, and uh, you know the problem of illegal guns coming up from the the south in the U.S. has been something that's bedeviled. Um, successive governments here. It's uh, It's been a problem for many, many years, and it doesn't seem to be any sign that it's abated. Yeah, the numbers that uh, that you referenced in the piece today, 235 firearms, 627 prohibited weapons uh, seized at the border, which I got to figure is a, is a drop in the ocean compared to the stuff that's coming across. Because, Tim, you've, you've heard the same stuff I have, and it's anecdotal, but, I mean, you know, I've, I've talked to, to high school kids around, even in the Hamilton area, and they'll say, look, at, you want to get a gun, I can get you a gun by the end of the day. Uh, you know, we know a guy. Everybody knows a guy who can get a guy. And uh, you got to figure that those are illegal guns. But, I mean, police will tell you, just adding on to that, that yeah, but a lot of the guns that are committed in crimes and some of the action that's going on around these days have been stolen from homes, uh, from break-ins. I mean, so there's that element, too. So uh, I, I understand, that, you know, when the pushback to say, yeah, these are illegal guns, you got to stop the flow of the border. I don't think anybody's going to argue that. But there are still, uh, I think, some legitimate concerns about the number of guns that are available right now. The one that jumped out at me in your piece today uh, was 31 firearms per 100 residents. I didn't know it was that high in this country. Well, it's kind of middle of the road. Now, this comes from the uh, small arms uh, survey, which is sort of the the Bible on gun ownership. But um, the figures are a bit dated. They're still seen as the best uh, measure there. We we rank uh, anywhere maybe from about the 8th to the 15th in the world, we're in, we're in France, Norway, Iceland, uh, countries you don't think of as having uh, large gun ownership. But uh, sure, the, uh, when you talk about break-and-enters, uh, one of the uh, statistics tabled with this legislation showed that uh, from 2013 there were, there were 516 instances of uh, break-and-enter to steal guns. And this country went to 804 in 2016. So you know, you you could argue that uh, gun storage um, um, regulations need to be tightened, and and Ralph Goodale did mention this as something that he wants to take to committee uh, to have studied. Uh, there was an uh, an anecdote that he cited where there was a, a, a theft from a, um, uh, a gun vendor, where there was something like twenty four weapons that were held in place by one. Uh, wire. You snip one wire, you you have access to 24 guns, and that's what happened in this robbery. So, yeah, gun storage um, uh, regulations should probably be tightened. Uh, there should be probably, in my view, tighter regulations about where, if you own a gun, Bill, 
you've got to store it somewhere where if your home gets broken into, it's not, uh, you know, something that somebody can easily grab. And I know they've talked about this legislation south of the border, and it's, uh, you know, it's it's locking the gun and putting it away someplace, et cetera, yeah. and, and easy accessibility is, is always going to be an ongoing problem. But you get that resistance. Now, I've talked to gun owners, uh, and, a, boy, I heard a, an, an earful from a lot of them, Tim. Remember back, I guess it was around 2005 when the Paul Martin government uh, tried to pa- uh, pass this this handgun legislation. Yep. And and we had legitimate gun owners and people that were using it for target practice and everything else pushing back and saying, what, you know, we're already doing this stuff. What are you jumping on us for? Uh, and obviously they lost that election a couple of weeks after that, so that, not a whole lot happened with that sort of stuff. Uh, we don't have an NRA here, but there's a pretty strong voice uh, right now that suggests you just back off and let us do what we're doing. But you've quoted a number of statistics here. Uh, with the increase in gun violence, and it's not just here in the major cities, it's happening right across the country, that the government, I think, had to do something, didn't they? Well, for one thing, they promised it. Uh, secondly, they, um, you know, whether you think they tabled these these uh, stats merely to sort of give them cover for what they were doing or not, I think the stats are real. Uh, I think, you know, one of the things I, I tried to put, point out in the piece, and I'm certainly not the first one to suggest this, we we seem to have some kind of fascination here about the uh, firearm lunacy going on down in the in the U.S. and the school shootings and the massacres, and we go, oh my God, this, this, our neighbors are are completely nuts when it comes to this. Uh, we don't understand this, and I'm in that camp. I don't understand some of the arguments down there. You know, arming teachers and schools and so on. It's just it, it blows my mind. But I think we have a. Uh, I think we're very uh, adept at looking southward and going, oh my God, what's going on down there without taking a look in our own backyard and looking at some of these numbers. You know, as I was writing this piece yesterday, the uh, uh, the Toronto Star, for whom I was writing it, it had uh, a piece on a, a, a poor woman who was shot to death at a bowling alley yeah, uh, yeah. In, a, in a targeted gang shooting that uh, she happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And there was a 29-year-old out in the um, West End uh, suburb of Etobicoke who was also uh, shot uh, just minding his own business, apparently, according to police, uh, again, in a gang-related shooting. So, you know, we can look down at Parkland and, uh, you know, the most recent school shooting in Maryland or any day of the week down in the U.S. and go tut, tut, tut. But, uh, you know, I I do believe that we need to take a, a breath and take a look in our own backyard. And and the gunplay is, is concerning. I mean, you know, we've we've got gangs. We, there's, there's gunplay going on in the streets of Hamilton here. I mean, you've walked these streets, t- Tim. You know what's going on. I mean, you know, when you get somebody on a Sunday morning at noonish, uh, you know, all of a sudden there's gunfire going on in uh, a residential neighborhood. You know, you got to ask yourself what's happening here. But yep. but we we're, you're absolutely right. We're not immune to this. And I know people are going to say, well, come on, those are isolated incidents. Uh, but how do you explain what happened in New Brunswick a couple of years ago where those Mounties were shot? I mean, that guy was roaming around a neighborhood with assault weapons. Yep. Uh, yep. You know, so it does happen here. Mailthorpe comes to mind, you know, and those guys went up there and, and a couple of Mounties lost their lives in situations like that. There's got to be a discussion about this, and I guess, as you point out in the piece today, can it be a, a civil discussion in Parliament? I understand that there's always going to be pushback in the public because people are going to have their entrenched views, but we're looking for political leadership at this stage, not just from the governing party that's introducing this, but some some decent, I guess, debate and opposition debate about this as w- instead of simply saying, these guys are going to take your guns away and trying to polarize the debate even further. Well, you know, back to, to uh, how we got into this discussion, I, I'm often, as you know, rather cynical about how politicians are going to handle uh, the issue of the day. Uh, but, you know, I think this is going to unfold here in Canada at a time when one can argue that there might be some kind of tipping point going on down in the U.S., finally, uh, I look at the um, these uh, survivors of the Parkland shooting have been so passionate and so eloquent and so determined that one can't help but think that maybe generational change is what it's going to take uh, to uh, defeat the NRA south of the border and actually make some effective change uh, down there. It may not happen, but it's the first time I can remember in I don't know how many years where you look south of the border and think, maybe, just maybe. So if it's if we are looking at a potential tipping point south of the border, I'd be very, very disappointed if this rather um, uh, moderate legislation that the Liberals tabled yesterday turns into some kind of fiery polarizing debate here about gun rights and so on. Uh, 
it's 2018. One would like to think that, you know, as I say, a more mature debate uh, over this legislation is uh, just over the hill. We'll see, but uh, one can hope. Well, and and I think maybe the strongest point in in your piece today that that I'm hoping that that Andrew Scheer is going to pay attention to as the opposition leader is is let's have a discussion about this. And and I because I've seen some of the stuff that you that you know they're including in here, like they want to extend uh, background checks, uh, you know, not just to five years, which is the current situation here, and and make it a lifetime thing. I mean, those are common sense approaches. And and I think that's what they're looking to do here. So let's let's have the debate here, and instead of simply and maybe even reading the bill, and you know you're going to get opinion from all over the country, and you've already received some from the piece you put in the Star today. But uh, you know, read the bill, see what they're actually proposing here, and you realize you know what it's not it's not arcane. It's 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 not tying people's hands that are gun owners. It's it's I think a common sense approach to this, and let's just see how how Parliament deals with this, and we can kind of go from there. Would it not be common sense business uh, practice in any ways? And most businesses do this already, who are, who are selling guns, uh, to keep an in, a proper, up to date inventory of, um, you know, what you've sold and to whom you've sold it. Uh, you know, there's nothing um, big brother or sardonic about that. Uh, that would seem to be something that, I, as a business owner, I would be wanting to do anyways. And that, you know, the fact and as you that, point out in the piece, most of them do. Well, you know, I. I I will admit I've taken the government's word there. Uh, Ralph Goodale says most of them do. I would suspect most of them do because, uh, again, it would just seem to be prudent uh, business practice. Um, so uh, I don't know what would be so frightening about that, although, you know, there's a word in there that somebody pointed out to me today in one section that refers to um, the registrar instead of the vendors, and, and he, he points out to me that registrar means registry. So... You know, there'll be that kind of parsing going on, but uh, uh, again, on measure, uh, I don't think there's anything radical, in it, and I don't think it uh, necessitates a, any kind of radical debate. Yeah, we'll see how they handle it. Tim, always yeah. a pleasure. Great piece in the Star today. Thanks so much for the time. Thanks, Bill. Call anytime. I you betcha. It. Okay. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Uh, interesting meeting of the Planning uh, Committee, Economic Development Planning Committee uh, meeting yesterday. The City of Hamilton introduced uh, legislation uh, that is going to, uh, well, prohibit, would they hope anyway, uh, this monster home problem that seems to be creeping up in different parts of the city some years ago. That was happening in the west end of the city. Ancaster has been an ongoing concern, though, and that seemed to be the focus of an awful lot of the uh, stuff that had been talked about over the last couple of years. And I know it's been uh, a pain in the side, I guess, not just for the residents, but for uh, Lloyd Ferguson, who's the counselor for that area. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about the recommendations and, uh, well, whether or not it's going to be effective. Lloyd, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thanks, Bill, for uh, having me on to discuss this issue. Well, listen, I'm even hearing about it. I mean, I've been an Ancaster resident for a number of years right now, and I'm sure if you had a buck for every time somebody called to complain about this, you'd be a wealthy guy. Yeah, and it doesn't affect uh, the newer part of Ancaster, the parts that have sanitary sewers in place and storm sewers. And uh, what what triggers this is uh, the old part of Ancaster, and it's called the ER, or Existing Residential Zoning. And uh, there's about 2,500 homes in Ancaster that at one point when the home was built didn't have sanitary sewers. The sanitary sewers weren't put in until uh, in the uh, early 70s. And uh, in addition to that, um, these homes don't have um, urbanized roads. They have rural cross-section roads, which means in addition to no sanitary sewers, they have um, ditches to carry away the storm sewer. So in the 70s, these, uh, there, there was a lot of environmental issues, and I b- vaguely remembered, I was just a young kid then, but uh, seeing Ancaster all dug up with the sanitary sewers being installed, so the septic t- uh, tanks were disconnected. But as a result of that, when the homes were originally built, uh, they needed a large lot to accommodate a septic field. So most of them were you know, a couple hundred feet deep. And so they're 50 by 100, 60 by 100, or even bigger than that. So there were very large lots. But they had nice little uh, bungalow homes on it. That uh, was the style at the time. And, and quite frankly, that style is part of the charm of Ancaster right now. Well, with the advent of the green belt and um, prohibiting urban sprawl, and Ancaster's urban area is pretty well filled up now, people wanting to build Dreams homes are taking a look at these lots because they're very large and they can build uh, 
their dream home on there. And, and I want to mention right up front, Bill, that my intent here is not to discourage people to aspire to work hard to move to Ancaster and build the dream homes. We welcome them with open arms. Uh, what we want to do is just make sure they're done tastefully and are respectful to their neighbors. You know, this is not a new problem, I, and I understand it because I, I know the neighborhoods in Ancaster that you're referring to. Uh, but he, even, Lloyd, when I was on council in the south end of, of the, the mountain, Ward 7, where I was, uh, we had the very similar situation. Anything that was built uh, south of, uh, of Rymel Road uh, was the same situation. As a matter of fact, I lived there right, uh, from when I was uh, going to high school. I lived right at the corner of Rymel Road and Springside, which is uh, between Upper Wellington and Upper James. And uh, we were on a septic system uh, back in the, er, the 60s when we moved in there. And the, you're right, the lots were 50, 60, and sometimes 70-foot frontage, and they're very deep. But that's because you had to have a septic bed. Correct. Uh, and we had the drainage ditches and the whole nine yards. And about two years after we moved in there, uh, they started with the, the sewer system. And, and, and of course, the, everything's service now. But I had the same problem uh, years later when I was the council representative for that area because people would buy those lots and simply say, wow, look at all the space I got. I'm going to build a castle. I've always wanted a big, great big house. And I got complaints from the other neighbors saying, look, we don't want that here. You know, it's, it doesn't look like the rest of the neighborhood. It's taller. You know, there's some issues about sunlight. Uh, I don't want to be looking into somebody's back window, and I certainly don't want them on the second story looking into my backyard. So I, I, I get this, and I understand exactly the kind of complaints you're getting. Yeah, and, and of course, uh, you know, most of them that have been done in Ancaster are very nice. If you take a drive through uh, Spring Valley, it's been pretty much completely rebuilt now, probably the 75% area. And most of those are done tastefully, but some are not, in, in, uh, particularly in other parts of, of the existing residential or the old rural cross-section facilities that used to have septic fields. There's one home I, I took a look at. Because the lot is so large, they're able to push the house back to the point where the front yard matched the backyard of the neighbors, uh, the rear of the house of the neighbors, and it's because they wanted a large front lawn. And then they built this. 30 foot high, maybe a little, even a little higher than that, because I think there was an issue of, of having to get a variance for them. But um, and, and so it lost, the, the neighbors lost their privacy, because in this home, they could look out the second floor window and look straight down into their backyard. They have a pool, it takes away from privacy. So this, I first raised this matter in 2011, asking what the fix is. And in 2014, I actually was able to formalize a resolution to ask staff to come back on what's the way to, to process this. Check with other municipalities. I'm sure we're not alone on this issue. And in 2016, we held a public meeting at the Old Town Hall in September 2016. Large turnout. Uh, the place was full. There was standing room only. And there were some horror stories about, about uh, people who lived next door to these rebuilds, um, you know, it was embarrassing for them to when their friends come around because of these great big monsters sitting right up against their lot line. And and so uh, staff went off, and I had a series of one-on-ones with staff uh, with individuals who had experienced it because it's difficult to come up with uh, a rule that works for everyone. And, uh, you know, once again, we don't want to discourage people from coming in and building their, their dream home. And we just want it done tastefully. And as I say, most people have done that, and we're satisfied with it. So what we come up with, and um, we finally got it before a committee yesterday, is to control uh, uh, height, uh, setbacks, and and uh, the requirement of a, what we'll call, it's a layman's term, a mini site plan. So in height, we're going to go from uh, uh, the, what you can build there right now is 10.5 meters high. And we've reduced that to 7.5 meters for one story and 9.5 meters for two. On the front yard, um, right now, the, the, it's 7.5 meters, a minimum of 7.5, but you can go as deep as you want. Now we're saying you must build the average of your neighbor on each side. So if one on one side is 8 meters and the one on the other side is 9 meters, you can build the average plus or minus 20%. To, to keep the streetscape, the line across the front of the street, compatible with the existing neighborhood and what it, what it represents. On lot coverage, um, for anything under 1,600 square meter lot, it, it's staying at 35%. But if it's larger, we're going to reduce that to 25%. And the same on the rear yard. Um, we're we're uh, going to uh, make it a percentage of the... Uh, the um, lot the total lot area 
to try to make the backyards a little deeper so these homes are not being built right back against the home that's in behind them. And it's a very complicated formula. It used to be on the rear yards you would have 7.5 meters. Now for lots with less than uh, or equal to 40%, four, I'm sorry, 40 meter lot depth, a minimum rear yard of 25% of the lot depth must be put in. If they're 40 meter lots, 30%. If they're 45 meters, 35%. How big and, a problem is this, Lloyd? I mean, I, you said that this is happening a lot. Are there are there other potential lots where, where all of a sudden this is got, now going to be applicable, or are we just talking about a handful of situations? No, no, this is quite applicable, particularly around the... Um, Front yard setback, rear yard setback. Side yard has always been a problem because the uh, it was 1.5 meters. And at 1.5 meters, if you lift the house up, which a lot of people on rebuilds like to do, it's dumping water on their neighbors. And at 1.5 meters, you can't put a walkway to get to the back and put a swale in to catch the water. So we've gone to a minimum two-meter side yard setback. And then it, it goes up from there, depending on the frontage that you get, to make sure that we're able to put a swale in to be able to capture the water that's coming off the new home and, and uh, being uh, displaced or removed either out to the street or the rear yard so it doesn't cause the water to pour into the backyard of neighbors. And in one case that I witnessed, they actually, uh, every time they got a heavy rain, it filled their pool up because this water would run off. But in addition to that, I added it yesterday that we needed many site plans done because, you know, there's a few situations, particularly when you get down to the homes in uh, Ancaster Heights that have the view over the escarpment, just amazing setting with that view. And so the setbacks, uh, will, or the um, what we'll be looking for in the site plan is coming up with an elevation that staff can review and make sure it's compatible with the neighbors. Uh, in a lot of cases, when people have bought these lots in, they went in and took all the mature trees down. So we want to come up with a tree preservation plan. Clearly, the trees that are in the way of the new home will probably have to be removed. But we don't want someone going in, which we've experienced, and willy-nilly cutting down every large tree, which takes away from the, the canopy of the, the whole municipality and is uneasy to neighbors. But most importantly, we want the site plan to show drainage. So the water is captured on the lot that's being redeveloped and disposed of either through the rear yard, through proper drainage, or to the front yard, to those ditches, to be able to get away and not spill it over onto neighbor's property. How do you enforce that? That's an ongoing problem in every neighborhood in the city now. And I understand that when somebody goes in and builds a house or builds a number of houses, that they are supposed to obviously present a drainage plan and say, okay, I want to make sure that the runoff goes down and doesn't go into my neighbor's property or into their back or their basement for that matter. But invariably, after a year or two, Lloyd, you know, people say, yeah, but I wanted to put a garden in or I wanted to backfill and do this. And all of a sudden that changes everything. So, I mean, it's only as good as when you buy the house and move in. After that, it just seems there's no rule at all. Well, quite frankly, there's no rules when you build either. There's no site plan required on existing residential where it's an existing lot. And, uh, so this, this whole idea of having a site plan prepared and approved by city staff to make sure it's compatible with neighbors and water that runs and, and trees where we can are preserved will be new. Um, but but that, that, should be, that should be enforced right across the city. Well, they may. This is a pilot project, by the way, and um, other members of the planning committee were very intrigued at what we were able to do. And uh, they're saying, uh, you know, after we've run through three or four years or five years of this pilot, they may want to implement it in their own wards also. Now, Ancaster, I think, uh, other than maybe out in Stony Creek and maybe in Bimbrook, is an anomaly because they didn't have sanitary sewers until very late. You know, in the 70s to be installing sanitary sewers late, where we're in the lower city in the mountain, sanitary sewers were put in as the homes were built. And so um, the, the, uh, developers wouldn't create these big, large lots to accommodate the septic field. And so I believe this makes Ancaster an anomaly. And, and so there is fixes. And quite frankly, uh, you know, to, to prepare a site plan and submit it, it's, it's not a lot of work and it's not terribly expensive. But what we will be doing to answer your question is that we'll be requiring a deposit and, you know, something in the order right now um, to make sure that air water runs, uh, the city takes a deposit of 500 bucks. And most people don't ask for that back because you can't even start a truck up anymore for $500. And so we'll be taking that deposit uh, from potential um, builders who are going to build in these lots. And we haven't decided a number yet, but it'll be somewhere between $2,500 and $5,000. So if the builder or the homeowner built himself didn't do the drainage, didn't um, set the elevation right, and drainage is the big one, 
then the city has enough money to go in and do it ourselves to bring it back in compliance if the owner refuses. But with a $2,500 to $500,000 deposit, they'll, they'll get it right. And uh, and once again, I, I don't want to make this so arduous. It's difficult for someone to build their dream home. But we have to respect the neighbors and respect how we can manage this to make sure that they're protected. Yeah, this is a different animal. I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that, that this was a problem in the west end of the city some time ago uh, with monster homes. But what was going on there a lot of the times, people were building them, and then you, you actually try to build you know multi-residential so they could rent them out for university students. And, and that has a, obviously an impact on neighborhoods, and those neighbors, neighbors were complaining about that. Anyway, the city seems to have handled that. and uh, Not that there isn't a problem with student housing still, but Ancaster's a different animal altogether. Uh, I know a lot of people spoke about this issue yesterday, and you you know a lot of them, Lloyd, as, as mm-hmm. constituents of yours. Are they satisfied with what you're proposing here? They're, they're, it, you know, this is an interesting uh, comment. Number one is nobody w- was there that opposed it. Uh, I've, I thought the Hamilton Home Builders may show up and oppose it. So uh, no one who was there who disagreed with what we're proposing. Everybody uh, loved it. They just wanted us to go further with the site plan in addition to the height and the setbacks. And... Um, uh, committee agreed through a resolution back to staff. So this whole matter will be coming back to uh, the April 17th planning committee, uh, blocking and loading the, the setbacks with maybe some tweaking after what we heard yesterday. Uh, everybody seemed reasonably satisfied with the height, that you can still build a nice house, uh, uh, you know, at the, at the new heights that we're going to specify and uh, then protect the neighbors through this mini site plan. And I've got to work with development staff, uh, engineering staff, and with the city planner on, on, on what we call it, because it's, you don't want them to force them to do a full-fledged site plan like you do with a 50-lot subdivision. Uh, what we want is just make sure the tree preservation, the, the uh, drainage, uh, are protected, along with the elevations are not sitting up significantly higher than the neighbors. And again, I understand this is a pilot project, but I, I, I got to figure that some of your council colleagues are going to look at this and say, you know what, because there's growth going on every place, and a lot of it is infill. Uh, and this is not a unique problem to Ancaster, where people are buying lots, and this happened, I guess, a lot uh, during the, the real estate boom we had about a year and a half or so ago, uh, where they buy the lot and, and immediately begin, you know, I want to tear that house down. I don't even want the house. I just want the land. And I'm going to put my house on there, but uh, you know, there's there's got to be rules. That's that's really what this I, I think is is addressing. That you know, no matter where you're doing this, you got to come back and say, okay, now you got to be in compliance with this set of rules. And it doesn't seem as if that was actually being done before. Well, there was rules, but there were just minimums, and and so minimum front yard setback, minimum 1.5 meter side yard setback. But that's not doesn't work in an existing residential when you have these great big lots. 7.5 meters uh, sounds like a lot, but if you've got a lot that's 300 feet deep, you may want to move the house back. Well, now you, you'll only be required to uh, set the house back to the average of your neighbor on each side, just so if, if there is, it doesn't stand out and doesn't take away from the privacy of the neighbors with these homes looking down on their backyards. And so I, I don't want to think every, your listeners think it was all willy-nilly before, but there were minimum setbacks, and the height has been reduced uh, to because some of them just stood out. Uh, and if, if you've got something that's 10.5 meters high up against a, little, a bungalow on each side, it just sticks out. And, and so that's why we've reduced the height by a meter also. But, and by the way, I, we're just about out of time here. Uh, there's some other stuff here that I think is, is very important, too. I mean, uh, not allowed second-story balconies, decks, and porches that protrude into side yards and garages, which is not to say you can't have a second-story garage in, or a balcony in Ancaster, but it's got uh, it, to be compatible with the rest of the neighborhood. I mean, if, you know, if you're one of 16 houses that are being built and they've all got that, that's, those features, that's fine. Nobody's complaining about that. But it's just if you're building a bigger home and everybody else is, as you say, one-floor ranch style, uh, then all of a sudden that's a vantage point and a viewing point, and people feel as if their privacy is being uh, eroded in situations like that. So that that makes all kinds of sense. Yeah, what it will do is prohibit side yard balconies, so you can't look into the bedroom window of your neighbor. Uh, they will be permitted on, on the back of the homes, on second floors. Uh, a lot of people like to have balconies off their bedrooms. Um, and you know, some people objected to that yesterday, saying, "No, well, they still tower over us and look down in our yards and take away our privacy." But this is all about finding a balance. Now, it was only an issue for one of the delegates yesterday, so I think we're going to leave this in place and see how it works uh, with uh, other changes that we've made. 
Well, let's, uh, as I say, the next council meeting, uh, they'll obviously have a discussion about this on a wider range with the whole council, and we'll see just uh, what kind of reaction they're going to get. Lloyd, thanks as always for the time. Appreciate it. Always happy to come on, Bill. Lloyd Ferguson, uh, Councillor for Ancaster, of course, and uh, the concerned citizens up there. Uh, and, and listen, it's it's a problem we all face. And I know that just even driving around and looking at some of the newer developments that are happening, whether it's residential, multi-residential, uh, you look at that and say, how could they allow that? That looks awful. Uh, there have to be standards. So that discussion is well, well worth having. And forcing them, I guess, is the bigger part of that right now, because uh, obviously the people that are living there already are the ones that are going to be impacted. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. There was a very important meeting held last night here in the city of Hamilton uh, that uh, I, I, was, I know a number of people were waiting for the longest time to, to have happen. Michael Tulloch, uh, Justice Tulloch, uh, was in town uh, and was going to talk about uh, carding, about police checks, the impact that it's having on community. Now, we know that, uh, that in response to a, a pushback from people in this community and so many others, uh, some months ago, the uh, provincial attorney general came out with some new recommendations and new guidelines. Uh, and the obvious question at that time is, well, does that solve the problem? Does that address all the concerns? Uh, I think based on what they heard last night at this meeting, the answer is absolutely not. Ruben Abib is a, a member of the Black Action Defense Committee, Canadian representative for the National Conference of Black Lawyers, and joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Mr. Abib, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, give me, a, if you could, uh, Ruben, your your impressions on what you heard last night. Well, the meeting was very well attended. There was uh, actually two meetings that were organized. There was uh, an initial meeting that started uh, before the larger meeting that focused predominantly on uh, the ethnic community, which has been one of the major targets of police through their police carding initiatives. Um, and walking into the larger meeting, most of the comments were, were concomitant and, and very, very similar. Uh, essentially, the public has no confidence whatsoever that the practice of uh, community engagement as practiced through the police carding initiative has any appreciable results to reducing crime. That there is no apparent correlation, especially to the, the civilian community, and also from what we've been able to gather from the police, there is no correlation between the numbers of people carded and any reduction in crime. And so the public that was there last night was adamant that if there is no appreciable um, change in the rate of crime because of carding, why are you doing it? And the overall um, understanding is that really the denial of our charter rights by being forcibly detained, which is simply a person uh, asking you to stop and, and engage with them, that is very much the same as putting someone in handcuffs and putting them in the back of their car for five minutes. If you stop me on the street for five minutes to try to gain information from me, you're illegally detaining me. If you ask me questions about my identification or my family background or whatever, you're actually illegally searching and seizing that information. And the public was adamant that these practices have to stop, that the only, uh, the only benefit gained is a distrust of the police by the very members that they are hired to serve. There, there's some, some incongruity in the arguments uh, that, that, on, that have been going on for some time. And this is not a new story, of course, and I know you're well aware of that. But, uh, I, gosh, I can remember doing a, a story. It was based on a survey that Toronto started, and it was probably 20 years ago now, about the disproportionate number of black people that were being stopped by uh, in traffic, uh, uh, alleged traffic violations, or stopped late at night for no reason at all. And, and I think we were shocked by that. And you'd figured that after 20 years and a, a very, very uh, robust discussion and debate we've had about this, that we'd make some headway into this. But I don't, I don't think so. It sounds like we're spinning our wheels. Well, um, I, yes, I believe the wheels are spinning, but there's, there's some intent um, behind that. Um, the reason why the, the police services and the police services boards um, are spinning the wheel to continue this practice, even though um, it has been shown that it creates a ratchet effect of racial profiling, um, not only within the black community, and we certainly uh, have been one of the major targets, but also of the First Nation and Six Nation communities. Absolutely horrendous numbers of people um, vicariously and arbitrarily stopped where there has been no reasonable probable grounds to believe a crime has been committed. Um, also in the Asian community, 
very high disproportionate numbers. And so for whatever their particular reasons are, and we have some ideas and opinions, of course, but whatever their particular reasons are for these vicarious and arbitrary stops without reasonable probable grounds, the one thing is very clear is that they have collected a lot of data. You were just speaking um, before I came on about Facebook's fiasco with uh, selling data. Mm -hmm. But we know that the police services have been giving this data to the Canadian uh, Securities and uh, Information Services, CSIS, to other police boards, to the RCMP. And these are, this is information of people who have never been charged with a crime and who have actually never even been accused of a crime. And so we really feel, uh, in, the, in the ethnic community especially, uh, if I may speak on their behalf on this point, um, we feel betrayed. We feel absolutely betrayed, first and foremost by the police who are conducting these arbitrary and vicarious um, street checks, but also more so, and I think this is something that is becoming um, much more tangible and much more heated within our community, the police services board. They are supposed to be um, our first line of defense in terms of civilian oversight of the police. That we have created the police services boards to sit um, in council with the police to ensure that our rights, uh, our charter rights and freedoms are protected. And that the role that the police services are doing within our communities is consistent with what we in the community expect and desire of the police. But instead, what has happened is that the, the police services board have become a rubber stamp for um, the police misconduct in terms of our charter rights and our freedoms. And they have actually become the police first level of promotion, as if they are lobbyists for the police. And I think that they themselves are confused about what the real role should be as civilian oversight bodies for we, the population, um, for the uh, um, toward the police services, and I, I believe that they, they, they really don't understand um, what their role is. The community is not saying that we don't want police. On the contrary, especially in many of the ethnic communities where we do have very high uh, criminal uh, uh, activity, high rates of criminal activity, we would like the police to be more efficient we would like them to um, do more investigations for people who actually um, are involved in criminal activity, and there is reasonable probable grounds that they could do criminal activity. What we don't want, is, and this is very true, we really do not want them to practice community engagement where they are getting to know who we are, they are getting to know who our children are, they are getting to know who our grandmothers and our grandfathers are, for no particular reason related to any crime or related to uh, any infraction of the criminal code. So, we expect them... Go ahead, sir. I was just going to ask you then, Ruben, let's, let's talk about it, because I know when, when we've had this debate, and the Attorney General responded to this uh, some months ago and, and said, okay, we're going to look at this, we're going to revise uh, the Police Service Act, we're going to make some changes about this, uh, and your point is well taken about the oversight bodies, and it's not just the Police Service Boards, it's, it's the provincial oversight bodies uh, I mean, you know, there's a celebrated case here of uh, Councillor Green who's alleged that he was a victim of this. I, we're still waiting for a decision on that. I don't know how much longer that's going to take. Uh, but it, April it, it, 26. Well, hopefully April. it's going to be. Uh, you know, but it, it, it just brings to mind that old phrase of, well, justice delayed is justice denied. I mean, this happens all too frequently, and it's wrong yeah. for both sides. It's wrong for the police uh, that are waiting for a decision on these sorts of things. It's wrong for the public and wrong for the people that, that have been impacted by these sorts of things. But here's my question. You've spent a lot of time in legal circles. Uh, can you legislate common sense, and can you legislate uh, the sorts of things that are going to do to solve these problems. I, I get the sense that this is more of a, an attitudinal problem than a legal one. Um, well, it has been more of an attitudinal problem um, for the basic reason that we, the population, have not made it a legal issue. Uh, and, and I thank you very much, Mr. Kelly, for bringing that up, because one of the mantras that I've been speaking for um, uh, the past number of years, probably more than a decade, which I learned from my mentor, uh, Charles Roach, uh, who actually utilized this practice, is that uh, he told me years ago that um, although we, we go out on the streets and we demonstrate, 
that that is only partially effective. That in Canada, especially, it's very important that you litigate in order to legislate. Now, uh, in t- between Toronto and Hamilton, um, there have been uh, tens of thousands, if not more, individuals who have been um, victims of these vicarious arbitrary stops by police. What happens if each one of those people brought those officers to bar civilly? Win or lose, this is, this is the issue, is that, you know, and I mentioned this yesterday to Justice Tullock in the uh, ethnic community meeting, that even if we lose those cases, if we bring hundreds of cases or perhaps even thousands of cases related to um, police engagement, illegal police engagement, illegal carding before the courts, the judges would wake up eventually. But right now we're not doing that. There is a, I think, a, a systematic... Um, you know, um, we're not that enthusiastic about taking the police to court. But when we recognize that our civilian um, politicians and our oversight bodies are not working for us, what recourse do we have? And I really would encourage people to think about this. Um, Quite interesting enough, uh, there is a a legal aid um, has come out with a new racialized community strategy. And we're holding an event uh, next Thursday at the United Steelworkers Hall from 7 to 9 p.m. Uh, where Legal Aid is going to come in and talk to us about this. And quite interestingly, on part of their marketing, um, they have, they're asking a question, you know, if you have an issue with uh, the legal system, do you know where to go? And they say, uh, one of the points below, have you been uh, illegally stopped or engaged by police? Now, that is giving the impression that legal aid is going to step up to the plate and begin to offer perhaps legal aid certificates to those people who cannot afford to litigate on their own. This would be a tremendous help. Uh, If we bring these officers to bear, not everybody is like Councillor Green. And I give uh, much respect to Councillor Green for having the courage to put himself and his family on the line because he has received many, many threats, even death threats, because he has stood up publicly to this. And what is the problem, really? I mean, obviously, this officer had absolutely no reason to speak to him, um, either before or after. Uh, why, Why is it so difficult for the police service in Hamilton to say, yes, this officer made a mistake, reprimand him smallly, uh, and move on? But instead... They have decided to create a fortress around this officer and around this practice, uh, and they have begun to castigate uh, Councillor Green for his right to to defend himself. But the, is, there, that, is there not a, a, a much more elementary uh, concern here, though, Ruben, when you look at these, is is that initial point of contact? And that's, that's where the attitudinal problem, I think, really comes to bear. Uh, you know, as, as one person uh, in the, uh, this community told me some time ago when we were having this discussion, uh, if there are two kids hanging around Jackson Square, one is black and one is white, which one do you think the police are going to approach? Uh, and, and I think the answer to that is, is was self-evident, obviously, based on some of the things we've seen. So where is that attitudinal shift that's supposed to happen? I mean, I know a lot of the people at that meeting last night said we want to have better uh, ties between police and community. We want to have a better relationship. Uh, how do you get that to happen? That, I mean, that's a fabulous platitude to, to shoot for, but how do you make it happen? Well, that's a very good question. Um, I, I don't have um, the direct answer to that. Um, you know, we are struggling on many levels. I've also been involved um, with the civilian oversight on other issues, um, especially regarding the special investigation unit where there's serious crime and death um, at the hands of the police by the public innocently. Um, one of the things that we, we continually say, and it, the, it remains true as well for our police services board, is how are we hiring what is the premise that we are hiring police officers? What type of characters, what type of individuals, what type of personalities do we want within our police services? And likewise, what type of personalities do we want within our police services board? Presently, I, I think we're striving for the wrong type of individuals. Um, there has been um, a, a great move to include more visible minorities within the police services However, um, the attitude of the police toward the population is something that we need to look at. It's very, very important for police officers to um, be respectful.
expected within a particular context. And I'm a father. I have four children. I, I, I also uh, demand certain respect from my children and as well from everybody in the community. However, what am I prepared to do to ensure that I get that respect? Now, especially when you're dealing with police officers, we have to understand that these are armed and armored individuals who, um, by their very visage, by the way how they look, are intimidating. I lived for 11 years in Africa. I've seen more AK-47s on the street than, than most people will see in their lifetime. That's an intimidation value. It's the same true here. Our police look intimidating because that is part of the purpose um, that they play. That when we see police or in criminals see police, they should be intimidated not to do crimes. Well, that also bleeds over to the regular community. And people who are not criminals and people who have not conducted crimes are also likewise intimidated by the very um, nature of police. How do you so address that you then? Have, How do you address that then? Well, I, I think part of what we have to do is we have to really look at what policing is. Um, you know, we, our policing uh, in, in Ontario began uh, in the 1840s. Um, believe it or not, before the 1840s, from the War of 1812 until the 1830s, the policing in what was Upper Canada was done by elements of the, the British Army. And believe it or not, it was the black regiments that fought alongside the Six Nations uh, in St. Catharines and other areas that were tasked to do the policing. These are, these are facts that, that are not commonly known. In Toronto, um, they actually got rid of the entire police force three times between 1850 and 1863 because of corruption with the aldermen and the mayor's office. Absolutely got rid of them. And it was only when they brought in William Stratton Prince, I believe that was around 1875. William Stratton Prince was an officer in the British military whose father was actually accused of arbitrarily, summarily executing uh, Americans. Um, but William Stratton Prince came in and he made the trauma police force what it has evolved into today. Well, we're just and hoping we don't have to go to that extreme. But I'm, I, 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 sadly, we're out of time right now on this one. But I, listen, I, yeah, but I want to make this part one of, of this discussion, Ruben, because I think there's an awful lot more that we need to discuss and put on the table here. Uh, last night was certainly a good start, and, and I think this session uh, with you today uh, certainly has, has opened a few people's eyes to exactly what's going on. Can we uh, uh, promise to get together again uh, relatively shortly and, and, and maybe get into this a little bit more? Uh, Mr. Kelly, I'm at your service. Um, I, I truly believe that um, discussions on this, especially discussions that are not extreme, but try to understand from both sides, are extremely important for us to move forward. Um, Canada has always been a leader in everything that we do. It's time that we create a police force that uh, we can be proud of and that the entire community has faith in. Absolutely. I certainly will be here anytime you need me, sir. Thanks again, Ruben. I appreciate the time today. We'll be in touch soon. Take care okay, now. Take care, and thank you very much. Ruben Abib, uh, of course, uh, a member of the National Conference of Black Lawyers who attended the meeting last night. We do have to continue this discussion because we're not where we need to be right now in this community. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.